As I see we have a few vis visitors, I want to do some housekeeping before we get started tonight. Um, first off, if you're looking for the restroom, it can be a challenge to find it here in this building. Um, the church is 100 years old, which means the restrooms are in the basement, and the door to the basement is outside the building. And so if you go out the side of the church here, you'll see keys hanging near the sink. Um, you can just go out, look to the left to see the staircase going down. Um, the restroom is remodeled, so it's a lot nicer than it sounds. Um, but there you go. There you can know, uh, know about that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is if you happen to just uh, wander in tonight, we are currently in the midst of, um, of a sermon series. In fact, if you're looking for the Through the Bible service that we usually do on Sunday nights, that's on hold until November 12th, and then it will return. Currently, both in our morning and our evening service, we're going through a uh, sermon series called Sex and Gender in the Image of God. This is our third week of seven. Um, tonight, we will look at uh, a passage of scripture and talk about these things, and then we'll finish up with a Q&A. And so if you have questions throughout the sermon, uh, whether they're related to the sermon or the topic in general, you uh, can see a number right at the top of the screen, and you can just text them in. Um, it's an anonymous service, and we'll take some time to answer um, questions afterwards. If for any reason I don't get to your question tonight, um, I promise you I'll reply personally via text as well. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started, but I should just lay a little bit of framework. Um, we, over the course of seven weeks, are looking at this topic really focusing on the why of a Christian sexual ethic more than the what. And so we're not looking at particular issues, but trying to lay a broad theological framework for how the Bible thinks about sex and gender. Currently, we're looking at the three aspects of sexuality that the church has talked about for almost 2,000 years. Um, as far as I know, the first place we find it in the mouth of a Christian pastor would be in Augustine. Um, and since then, there's been these three categories. But as we'll see next week, these three aspects of sexuality, we even find in the prophet Malachi, who was a Jewish prophet before the coming of Jesus. And so, um, so we're not necessarily looking at something new or novel, um, but we are trying to take a fresh look at these things to answer the question, um, why sex? Why did God make this an aspect of human life? And so last week we looked at the reality of uh, sexuality being embodied, meaning that it involves our physical bodies, it involves our desires, um, and that is by design. Today we're going to look at the, uh, what's traditionally called the unitive aspect or the intimate aspect, or as we'll talk about it for the rest of the night, the relational aspect of, sex excuse me, of sexuality. And then next week we'll look at uh, at procreation as a window into a, uh, the final aspect which I've labeled social sexuality. Because according to the Bible, even though sex is an act between two people, our sexuality is much broader than just that. And so we'll look at that next week. Tonight we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 2. And just in case you haven't been joining us for the series, there's a reason why we're picking up in Genesis chapter 2. Consistently, when the Bible talks about sex or about gender, and it doesn't matter if this is uh, Ezekiel in chapter 16 or Malachi in chapter 2 or the book of Proverbs or Song of Solomon, it doesn't matter when we get to the New Testament if it's Jesus in Matthew 19 or Paul in Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 14 or Galatians 3, all of these places that deal with sex and gender constantly refer back to and reference this chapter. 
They see the creation narrative not merely as being the beginning of the story, but being the design of how God created the world. And so that is their primary text for understanding these things. Over these seven weeks, we'll be looking at many of those other texts, but tonight I wanted to just start with this one, even though we'll bounce around to a few others. So what I'd like to do is read chapter 2, verse 18, through the end of the chapter together. We'll pray, and then we'll take a deeper look at this relational aspect of sexuality. If you're in need of a Bible tonight, you'll find one stuck in the back of the pew in front of you. It's the black one. The other ones are in German. Um, So grab the black one. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We'll be in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 18 begins, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heaven, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whether the man called every living thing, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Father, I pray tonight that you would teach us. I ask that you would shape our understanding. In fact, I I pray as I've been praying for myself throughout this study for the last few weeks, uh, that you would help us to do what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 12 when he says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I pray, Lord, that as we expose ourselves to what your word says tonight, you would renew our mind and transform not merely our perspective, uh, but our lives as they touch on this topic. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So just to summarize this brief story here, this is on the sixth day of creation. And so there's been a repeated refrain in chapter one of it is good. God makes light. In the end of the first day, and God saw that it was good, and it was good. And we see this over and over again. And then suddenly, in verse 18 of chapter 2, it is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And technically, this statement of it is not good actually expresses uh, something broader than what we're going to talk about tonight. We'll see that it's significant that it's not good for man to be alone next week, because what Adam needs is not merely a spouse, but community. It's broader than that. He needs society. He needs more than just a spouse. And as we saw last week, it's not good that man should be alone because male and female together reflect the image of God. And so in the embodied sense, male was not enough as God had designed. And so here the statement, it is not good, is an expression of a job unfinished. But what I want to focus on tonight is the specific need of it is not good that focuses on the relational need for Adam. And I want you to notice in our text tonight that God notices it before Adam does. Adam here is made, he's placed in the garden, he's given a job to do, and it's God who looks at that and goes, hold on a minute, this isn't right, it's not good. 
It's not good specifically that man should be alone. And then there's this interlude as he brings all of the animals he's created to Adam and Adam names them. And it's in this place, going through this process of interacting with all of the animal kingdom, that Adam becomes aware of the need. That's why it says at the end of verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so he observes both the significant pairing of all of these animals, if you will think of Noah's Ark, two by two, right? There's, there's a male and female bear, bear, so he's recognizing the parody of human or of animal life, uh, and then he also finds nothing within the human or in the animal kingdom, excuse me, um, that can be his full partner. He can have man's best friend, he can have animals to help him with the work, but no one is found that is a helper suitable for him, and it's at this point that God puts Adam to sleep and creates woman out of the man and brings her to Adam. Now, when Adam opens his eyes, he speaks, uh, and notice the tone of what he says in verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's, an, it's a eureka. It's an aha moment. It's finally... Here is one like me, and he recognizes what's happened, and so he names her woman because she was taken out of man, or in the Hebrew, he names her Issa because she was taken out of Ish, okay? And so there's a significance in the, in the pairing of the name. And then we get this statement in verse 24, and I want you to notice that first word in verse 24. It's therefore, okay? Now, that's significant because it tells us that we're not just observing circumstantially a romantic relationship, okay? We're not just witnessing a marriage. When this word therefore is stamped on here, it points forward to the future. In other words, what we read in Genesis chapter 2 becomes paradigmatic for the way we understand marriage. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, Genesis points out that the therefore a man shall leave his father that's spoken in verse 24 is not the words of Moses, our narrator, but actually the words of God himself, as if God was presiding as pastor over the wedding of Adam and Eve, and God speaks these words according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's what we want to focus on, is exactly what this means this evening. And effectively, as we'll see, we're talking about an intimate human relationship. But before we get into it, it's worth remembering that there are other intimate human relationships. And especially in a time like ours, this has to be stressed. We live in a time of such extensive freedom and autonomy and independence that relationships are in constant threat and decay. And so it's difficult even for us to sustain the intimacy that's envisioned here because of these things, because of the uh, self-actualization that we tend to put first in our society, but imagining things beyond what we see as the last bastion or the greatest relationship of intimacy uh, can sometimes be hard for us to do. So let me just stick a couple of things in your memory that happen in the Bible. For example, there's David's relationship with Jonathan. Now, David was the king of Israel, and Jonathan was the son of the current king of Israel. David was going to become king. He'd been anointed as king. It's a little bit difficult, okay? 
Um, but he's so close to Jonathan that when Jonathan is killed in battle, he's mourning for him publicly and he says, I appreciated your love greater than the love of women. He looks at his relationship with his friend Jonathan and he says it's closer than the relationship between me and my wife. I would say in our time, that's a rare occurrence, that a friendship could be so intimate that it would be put on a higher level of intimacy than marriage. But that's how David speaks. We also find other relationships within the Bible that are, um, like marriage, tremendously committed and intimate. Consider Ruth and Naomi. Now, Naomi is a widow, and Ruth is her daughter-in-law, who is also widowed. They're returning from the land of Moab. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's come from her home to the borders of Israel, but Naomi is returning home, and she stops at the border, and she says, don't come with me. I don't have any other sons to give you. You don't have any family for you. There's nothing here. I release you. Go and find a husband and live out your life. And Ruth speaks to Naomi, and she says something that's so profoundly beautiful in its commitment that it's sometimes read at wedding ceremonies, okay? What she says is, no, I will go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, and I will be with you until the day I die. So there are other forms of intimacy. It's not so much even to see marriage as the most intimate relationship two human beings can have. Although, as we'll see tonight, it is uniquely intimate. It's intimate in a different way. If I could just point out one other thing to broaden your mind, consider the relationship between a mother and a child. Okay, nursing, which personified and has bodily personified that relationship for so long, is a great expression of intimacy, is it not? Here's somebody that you've birthed from your body, who you're nourishing with your body. It's a tremendously close relationship, okay? But this relationship is envisioned here, the marriage relationship, the sexual relationship of intimacy that the Bible calls one flesh is unique. And so it's worth asking the question, what exactly does it entail? What does the author mean by saying the two shall become one flesh? Now, as we unpack this, I think it's worth taking time to point out what it's not saying. Okay? This is not merely a relationship that the Bible envisions as being romantic. Although what we read here is clearly romantic. In fact, the words that Adam speaks here, and maybe this shows up in the formatting of your Bible, are the first poetic statements in all of Scripture. Okay? The first time the Bible breaks out of prose and into, uh, into poetry is when Adam is expressing his excitement and his relief and his sense of belonging to this person known as Eve. Not only that, but the longest poem in the Bible... The Song of Songs is devoted to the beauty of the loving relationship between a husband and wife. And it is a tremendously romantic book. That can be lost on us sometimes because the imagery is so foreign. It wasn't foreign to the audience that wrote it. In fact, you were required to be an adult man before you were allowed to read the book because it's so erotic. But if you haven't read the book, it's effectively a man and woman fawning over each other over and over again in public. But it's this great poetic celebration 
of the loving relationship we see here, the one flesh relationship. But it's not merely romantic. It's more than that. Something more significant is going on, and that's worth owning up to. It's worth recognizing because the primary way we think about this intimate relationship is in the terms of romance. And I have a couple of concerns about that that I'd like to share with you tonight. Um, One is the fact that uh, we tend to think as moderns of this romantic relationship in terms of a particular phrase or title, the one. The one. Now, at, at first glance from Adam and Eve, that's maybe for the only time in history in an appropriate title. But what we're expressing with the one is that there is in all of the fish of the sea only one who's designed for you, only one who you must find. And the problem I have with this is best summed up in C.S. Lewis's concept that he called chronological snobbery. Okay? Chronological snobbery is when we assume that we are righter and better and freer and smarter than any other time in history just because we're further down the timeline. And I just want you to recognize if it's really essential for a good marriage to be based on an amazing romance, then you've written off the majority of marriages in human history which have been arranged, which had no element of dating and were often outside of the control or the choice, even if they had the ability to say yes or no, it was arranged, it was set up. In fact, in the Jewish mindset, the rabbis used to say that marriage is way too big of a decision for two teenagers to make, so the community makes it for them. And so all I want you to recognize tonight is if we are going to say that the essential ingredient of an intimate relationship is this romance that we like to portray and personify on screen, then we are assuming that most, the large majority of marriages across history failed, had no potential for that. But there's another complaint I have about the modern view of romance, and that's that we tend to see the wedding as the end of the story instead of the beginning. I mean, this is pretty easy to illustrate. When was the last time you saw a romantic movie or a romantic comedy? Where do they end? They end with the wedding. When was the last time you saw one about a married couple? In fact, more often, the stories we tell about married couples are about the fraying and fragmenting. You know, the the fire going out and the romance burning, you know, lower, just embers and coals at this point. Those are the stories we tell about marriage. Here's something significant about the Song of Solomon that I mentioned to you earlier. As I mentioned, it is a tremendously romantic book, and there's a wedding in it. But do you know where the wedding is? The wedding is right in the middle. And so there is this tremendous appeal and anticipation ramping up to chapter 5 with a wedding, but then the book continues. In fact, if you read it carefully, you'll notice that the romance and the idiom and the imagery and the eroticness of it all hyper It just extremely goes up after the midpoint, but it continues on. Now, that may not seem practical to you, and we'll come back to a few other versions of this tonight, but one place I think it's terribly significant is because of the way we think about good marriages and bad marriages. Because of this romanticizing of marriage, which is relatively new in history, to make this the focal point, um, because of this, We tend to treat a marriage like a fine piece of china, and it only goes bad if it gets broken, and so the goal is just to protect it so so things don't go south. I would 
challenge you tonight that a much better analogy, and especially one that meets the criteria of what we're going to talk about tonight, is that a marriage is like a baby. It's immature. It's just beginning. And hopefully, with time and effort, it grows and strengthens and deepens. And when, I, when that occurred to me, when I was reading a book that was talking about marriage and it, it opened my eyes to see that reality, it seemed somewhat self-evident to me. And I had to ask myself, why have I never thought of it that way? It's because of this view of romance. Now, there's an irony in this view of romance as well, because it believes in the one, but in practice it becomes a serial process of the many. Right? as one after one after one is discarded because maybe the one's still out there. Ironically, the biblical view of marriage we're going to talk about tonight is open to the many, but consistently lands on and stays with and commits to the one. It moves in a very different direction. Now, I don't know if you've seen the film that came out last year, The Lobster. And I'm not sure because stylistically uh, it's not everybody's cup of tea, I should recommend it. But I do find it interesting because it is basically a fairy tale that's trying to pick apart our modern view of romance. And so in the film The Lobster, community has gotten to the point where if you are not paired in a romantic pairing, they will send you to a hotel where you have 45 days to find a new mate or they'll turn you into an animal to up your chances of mating. The main character who's been left by his wife who cheated on him is shipped off to this hotel. He's explained the way the rules work, um, and it is surreal watching how these things play out. But for tonight, what I wanted to point to, although there's many things in that film that I find interesting in its portrayal, um, is that everybody in the hotel is looking for somebody who shares their unique characteristic trait. So there's a man with a limp, and he's looking for a woman with a limp. Uh, there's a man who's nearsighted, and he's hoping to find someone who's nearsighted. There's a woman who gets bloody noses, and as the clock is ticking down for another man and he's running out of time, he starts to give himself bloody noses by punching himself in the face so that they can pair up. Now, I don't know about you, but my assumption is the... The filmmaker here is pointing to this phenomenon of compatibility that has become so essential. And so we look for somebody who's just the right fit for us. And the problem that that film points out is that when we build a relationship on such a narrow footing, it's hard to stand up. It's hard to be strong. It's hard to make sense. And the truth is, as those of you who have been married for a long time have discovered, people change. So it's not merely about romance, although there is romance in it. It's also not about personal fulfillment. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. Just like I said with romance, there is clear fulfillment in this relationship. The way that, uh, that husbands speak of their wives and wives of their husbands in the scriptures always point to great satisfaction. The proverb says, always be satisfied in the breast of your wife. There's a significance in this relationship, of course. But for, for many in our modern culture, marriage is essential for real life, for true life, for full life, for good life. And if I had to present as a Christian Exhibit A to think differently, it would be Jesus himself, who lived a fully human and God-glorifying life sans wife, sans family. 
In fact, we'll talk about this more next week, but seeing Jesus as a man of family values is incredibly difficult if you read your Gospels. Most of the things he says when he speaks of mother or father or brother or sister are surprisingly negative. But more on that next week. But trying to make a single human being our total, satiated, personal fulfillment is problematic. In fact, from a Christian perspective, although we long for something deep and satisfying and complete, it's not found or upheld in marriage, but in our relationship with God. If you understand the way the Bible talks about your deepest longing and needs, you would agree with what Augustine said when he said that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And of course, if we get that wrong, if we think the one thing that life needs to be worthwhile, the one thing that life needs to make it life itself is marriage, then we put a tremendous weight upon our spouse. And there's a deeper problem. As we look at intimacy tonight and its goal, we're going to find that this ultimate sense of personal fulfillment goes against the grain because it's inherently selfish. It says, you exist to meet my needs, to make me happy, to fulfill and to complete me. And so it's not that marriage isn't fulfilling, but it's not ultimately and totally another aspect of self-fulfillment. It's something different. So what is it? It's best expressed in a couple of places here in our passage. The first one I want to point you to is in this proclamation in verse, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Now, that first statement probably doesn't strike you as anything profound. Like, we still recognize that a man not getting married and moving out of the house is, what did that film call it five years ago? Failure to launch, right? We still recognize that having your own family is an aspect of maturity. And, and so we read this, and it says a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That resonates with us, but that's because you're not an ancient Israelite. Okay? Like most cultures in the area in the, in the time that this was written, Israel was patrilocal. Pat, pater meaning father, local meaning location. Meaning that when you went and got married, you didn't go get a studio apartment downtown. You built an addition to your father's house and moved your wife in. So what in the world in that context can it mean when it says you leave your father and mother? If it said the woman leaves her father and mother, that would have been natural and normal to the culture. But it says here that the man leaves the father and mother. What in the world is it trying to express? Consider this that's also significant. Remember, remember that the Israelite uh, uh, culture, and the Bible in particular, put an extensive weight on the treatment of parents. Right? One of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. And that need, that recognition of first and primary allegiance to your parents is so significant that we find it legislated to a great deal in the Old Testament law. And here it says, leave father and mother and cling, be joined to the wife. That's where the significance of this phrase lies. What we're talking about here is the forming of a new kinship 
a new family, and not only that, but one that's closer than the relationship between you and your parents. So much so that that word leave is most of the time in, the, uh, in English translated in the Old Testament as forsake. Okay. It's a profound statement of new allegiance, of leave and cleave, of a relationship closer than blood. But not only that, it goes on and it says, and the two shall become one flesh. What is envisioned here that the Bible is talking about? It's not merely romance. It's not merely personal fulfillment. In fact, it's not merely the forming of a new family unit or kinship. What it is ultimately and totally is the sharing of life, the sharing of all things. Two becoming one flesh is not so much, and this is important and worth saying, not so much that Adam was initially an androgen, neither male nor female, and then God split them into man and woman, and now they are incomplete till they find one another. I resonate just as much as you do culturally with Jerry Maguire's You Complete Me. We're going to see that this is a little bit different tonight. But nonetheless, nonetheless, what they become together is compared here to being one flesh, one person, that they're united in such a way that their lives become shared. So clearly this involves a sharing of household. They live in the same place. But it also involves an intertwining of destiny. Right? Economic destiny of good and of bad. Uh, it's an intertwining of lives and a sharing of lives so that this is someone who knows you and who you are known by. Someone who you share secrets with. In fact, notice the last phrase of this chapter in verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there is probably just a, a baseline significance of this nudity and the fact that clothing were unnecessary, but more importantly than that, what we're talking about is a relationship that there's nothing between, that there's full exposure and vulnerability. Just take that phrase, unashamed there, and ask yourself where that applies to relationships in your life, where there's not an ounce of secrecy where you never have to check yourself before you speak because you're not sure the things you're really thinking would be received, where there's no hidden agenda, no manipulation, no regret because of mistakes made that you know still bear scars in the relationship. Now, honestly, we're only in Genesis chapter 2. The story doesn't end here. And so part of the reason it says here naked and unashamed is because there's no such thing as sin at this point. Because the evil that we experience in our lives hasn't entered into human relationship. And by the time we get to chapter 3, Adam goes from saying, you are part of me, my bone and my flesh, to saying, the woman that you gave me. And now she's just an, obje an object of deception and a person to blame, distant instead of embrace. Okay? So a lot's going to happen, and that's significant. I'm not saying that the marriage relationship is inherently one of nakedness without shame. What I'm saying is that's the way it was designed. I'm saying that the aspiration of this relationship is a full sharing without shame. A full vulnerability with full security. It's a sharing of all aspects of life. Sharing of emotions and dreams and fears and failures. All that there is. And what does it take? What does it take to experience that sort of intimacy? Well, there's a couple of significant things, and one of them is right here in our text. 
I want you to go back and look at the problem as God described it in verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Helper and fit there are two different words, and I'd like to talk about both. It's actually this little word fit that's more important for us tonight, but I want to deal with helper because it's often misunderstood. Here we have a man all alone, and God makes him a woman as a helper, and in our culture and in our language, that inherently sounds derogatory. One of my favorite songs on one of my favorite albums is Neil Young's A Man Needs a Maid. I don't know what it is about that song, but it just moves me. But I found myself thinking about it in in relationship to the preparation of this sermon, and that's not what this is about. God doesn't look at Adam and go, yeah, he needs somebody to clean up after him to cook. You know, that's not what he means, but it is often what we hear with the word helper. In fact, the primary way we use it is... I wouldn't say derogatory, but it is diminutive, right? It's something we say to a child, mother's little helper, right? Is that all Eve is to Adam, just Adam's little helper? Listen, the Hebrew word here is ezer. It's used twice in this passage and then about 20 times across the Old Testament. Significantly, 17 of those 20 times it's used of God himself. Okay, now why is that significant? It's significant because this cannot be derogatory or diminutive, diminutive, right? It has to do with who God himself is, both as people cry out to him as God my helper and as he proclaims himself to be as a helper to the needy, okay? It's a significant term. What about the other three times it's used? The three times it's used of anyone besides God, it's always in the context of a military risk, and the need for help. And so here you are on the front lines, the battle is going poorly, you're in need of a helper. And most of the occurrences where it it speaks of God, it's also in the context of military deliverance. Okay, the word ezer is a military word. Now this makes sense of something that might be weird if you've ever read Song of Solomon. In Song of Solomon, either chapter 6 or chapter 8, the husband, speaking of the wife, says that she is more fearsome, more terrible than an army with banners. Okay? When was the last time you saw that on a Hallmark card? Right? We generally, in our culture, associate military imagery with masculinity. And without a single thought, in fact, he says it twice, he looks at his wife and he says, you look like decked out soldiers. Why? Because of this word, okay? Here's the point. This word does not imply or speak to any sense of servitude. It speaks of strength. God looks at Adam and he goes, he's not enough, and he gives him a woman, okay? Now, we have to deal with that second word because it needs to be noted here that God doesn't look at Adam and go, I need more Adams. He needs an Eve, And that's where this word comes in. Now, your translation might say comparable or suitable or fit or if for some reason you have the old King James, a helpmeet, okay? The word here is unique in the entire Hebrew Bible. Its occurrence in verse 18 and then again in verse 20 are the only places we find it in the entire Old Testament. That makes it difficult to understand what's being said. But it is a compound word, and it's made up of two parts. The prefix K, and then the Hebrew word neged. Okay? The word here is konegdo. K. 
Okay? So it has these two parts. Now, K means like, and that probably doesn't surprise you. That's where the authors or uh, the translators of your Bible are getting this idea of suitable, comparable, fit. It begins here with K. That means like. In fact, even the context demands that because what's wrong with the animals? They're not like Adam. They're just animals. He needs another human. And by starting the word here with the prefix K, it's pointing to the reality that Adam needs another human being for real community and love. But when it couples it here with the word neged, that word occurs countless times in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's translated facing, sometimes it's translated opposite of, sometimes it's translated on the other side of. It's a word that implies difference. And so by putting these words together, the author is trying to craft an idea where he says both similar and different, both like and unlike. And so we have these two ideas, a strong helper and a like but different helper. Here's the point. The relationship that's envisioned here is one that is complementary, not merely where Eve has comparable strengths to Adam, but complementary strengths. In other words, the places where he's not as strong, she is strong. There's a reciprocity to the way that they are designed and built. That's why the Bible maintains that male and female are created in the image of God and that we only fully reflect who God is together. Now, clearly, this idea of male and female, of Adam and Eve, of uh, Konegdo and Ezer says something about the significance of both genders being in marriage. It says something about the Christian view of same-sex marriage. Now, we can talk about this more in the Q&A. We don't really have time to address it. I just want to make a really significant point here, that oftentimes that conversation is reduced to one about body parts. And that's not what this says. It doesn't say that a man needs a vagina. It says that a man needs a woman. Okay? And I'm only bringing that up because I think a lot of times it's missing from the conversation. This is not about the compatibility, compatibility of body parts. It's about the significance of male and female as God has designed them in their totality and their need together to be both man and his suitable yet different helper, both man and woman, comprehensive But there's two other things, and we don't really see them as clearly in the text right here. And so I want to jump forward to Song of Solomon, which we'll do in just a second. But there's two other things that are required for this type of all and total sharing that the Bible is envisioning here. The first is exclusivity. The first is exclusivity. Now, turn with me to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, chapter 8. As I mentioned, the wedding of Song of Solomon is right in the center, but chapter 8 is still the climax. And we have recorded here a passage that I often like to share uh, when I do weddings because I find that it's relatively unknown and it's incredibly impacting. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. The Shulamite who's speaking here is the woman of the poem, and she's speaking to her husband. At this point, they've been married for uh, some period of time. 
And this is her final statement on what she desires of her husband and what it is they have in this loving relationship. And this is what she says. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death and jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. It's that first image that I want to draw your attention to when she says, set me as a seal on your heart, and then again, set me as a seal on your arm. Now, the seal that's being pointed to here in the ancient world was a signifier of ownership. Imagine that you're in the shipping business, and when your boxes full of spices or whatever are put on a ship and headed for home, you would mark them with a wax seal, okay, that signified the fact that these boxes belong to you, and so when they pulled into the harbor, you could claim them by showing your seal, okay, it was like your signature. So when she says here, set me as a seal upon your heart, she's saying, you belong to me. In fact, that's the repeated refrain that we find in Song of Solomon, the chorus, if you will, that's repeated throughout this song is, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And so she calls him at the deepest level in his heart of hearts to set her as a seal upon his heart. But it's not just internal and invisible, it's also external. She says, and also on your arm for everyone to see, like that heart mom tattoo, right? That's the idea here. It's much like our wedding ring. It says something significant, not just the fact that I'm married, but also, in our, our modern idiom, I'm taken. Okay? She sees that as being an aspect of love, but why is that essential? You may or may not be familiar with the fact that there is a movement in our times towards polyamory, many loves, towards open marriages and, uh, uh, and even recognizing marriages that are polygamous, or uh, polyandrous in nature, um, but it is on the rise. And so th they would say, look, if love is such a great and beautiful thing, then sharing it with more people is greater and more beautiful. What's, what's wrong with that? What's problematic? If, isn't it better to draw in more people? Why does it have to be merely two people? Why does the Bible demand exclusivity? And here's the problem. If you divide the gift, you divide the giver. That's why it has to be exclusive. What's envisioned here is not just a sexual outlet, not just a pleasurable relationship, not just romantic sentiment, not even sharing of some things like a household or a family or these types of things, but a sharing of yourself fully and completely. And to give of yourself fully and completely, it must inherently be exclusive. Any giving that falls short of that holds back. Any giving that shares that divides it inherently. That's why the Bible doesn't feel the need to legislate against polygamy. Just read the stories. Okay, a picture is worth a thousand words and a narrative story is worth a hundred commands. The relationships of Jacob and his wives or Solomon and his 700 wives are not and they all lived happily ever after stories. There's something horrible about what happens when we try and divide ourselves. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about polygamous marriage when he said no man can serve two masters. But it is significant that no one can fully belong to two people. 
And so exclusivity is envisioned here, but that's not all. There's a second thing, and we see it in the next statement she makes. And to me, it's the most provocative one in the passage. She says, for love is as strong as death. She's that person, the person who brings up a funeral at a wedding, right? What could she possibly mean that love is as strong as death? Think back to the ancient world. Think of the significance of death in the ancient world. This significance is still true for us today, but we're incredibly good at hiding death right? Death happens at distant places and in hospitals and away from our homes. We, we may go an entire cycle of years without encountering an actual no longer living person. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. Death is a statement of inescapable permanence. What was no longer is. When she says that love is as strong as death, she's saying by definition, Love is inherently permanent. That the relationship that's begun in the marriage in the book of Song of Solomon is irreversible. Something that cannot be walked away from. Now why is that significant? Why does it matter? There's a sense where it already has to do with what we said. That permanence is the only way that you can give yourself totally to a person because you'll totally exist tomorrow. Okay? But there's something, there's some other aspects of this and I think some of them might be a little bit surprising. Uh, the first one is that permanence like this cultivates security. It cultivates security. Think of the vows that we say in a marriage, through sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, in good times and in bad. The problem is many of our romantic and especially our sexual relationships become precarious due to lack of security. And because of that, it turns sex in its significance to being about performance. In fact, it turns our entire relationship into a place that is a proving ground to demonstrate that we are still worthwhile, still worth loving, still worth living with, still worth the effort but marriage, as it's envisioned in a one-flesh relationship, is permanent, and that cultivates a sense of security. As I mentioned earlier, their relationship is envisioned as a vulnerable one. Both naked and unashamed means exposed, fully known. Vulnerability requires security to be lived in, to be walked in, to be practically lived out. In fact, there's this tremendously odd thing that happens to sex outside of the context of permanence, which is that it becomes commodified. It becomes economic in nature. What I'm saying is for many relationships that lack permanence, sex is, is a means to an end. It's, it's about everything else but sex. But there's more. Permanence also cultivates freedom. And that's something we don't always get culturally. The way that we generally think about the concept of freedom is one where there's no barriers, where there's no hold bars, where the opportunities are endless. Which isn't a bad definition of freedom, but it doesn't line up with all sorts of aspects of freedom. So a fish is much freer in the water than on land. And so in one sense you can say the fish should be free 
to live on land, but there's another sense where he's absolutely not free to live on land. And if he wants to maintain his freedom, he has to live not merely as if opportunities are endless, but in a way that he is designed to live. Okay. You are free to eat whatever you want, but you may not be able, you may not be free to leave your house after a while. You're free to not exercise, but there may come a point where your body doesn't cooperate, right? You need certain things that actually cultivate greater freedom, and as ironic as it sounds, permanence in relationship cultivates freedom. Now, that's so different than the way we think of romantic relationships. Just take the phrase, settling down. Right? That's how we normally talk about marriage. And so, whatever that implies, it implies a few things. That now is for active, and then I'm going to sit. Passive, right? Now is for adventure, and then is for dialing it back. Okay? But ironically, ironically, the one flesh relationship that's involved here, the support system that's involved here, the security that's involved here, cultivates a full freedom. For one... It frees up the sexual act to be just a sexual act of many in the context of an entire lifetime. A tryst, a one-night stand, the sex has to be mind-blowing because that's the only significance of the event itself. And the glorious thing about marriage is that any given aspect of sex doesn't have to mean that much because it's in this context of this broader thing. But apart from sex, the relationship itself cultivates freedom. Take, for example, the fact that you're not a great person. Okay? The Bible uses the word sin, but the significance of this is there's places where you're in dire need of confrontation and of support to change. The marriage relationship uniquely, like the church relationship, involves a commitment that both loves you enough to bring it up, but doesn't use that as a reason to walk away. Walks with you through the transformation and the change. And I'm speaking this from personal experience. I'm only 12 years into marriage, but I am a different person than the, wife my, or the, than the one my wife married. And part of the reason that is is because she stuck around long enough to help me get there. There's a freedom here. In fact, this intimate relationship we're talking about, like I said, from a development of immaturity to maturity, from shallow to depth, needs the permanence and the security to be free to actually grow. The truth is, sometimes it's the hard times and the disagreements and that occasion when your spouse says something and you're shocked to the core of your being that gets you to a deeper understanding of another person. Okay? And so permanence and security are essential aspects of this. Now, when we put this together, complementary, permanent, security, what are we saying about what's required for this relationship? We're saying it requires a covenant. That's the word the Bible would use. Now, marriage is probably the final covenant we have in culture. In the ancient world, they were common. But it's worth pointing out that it's the only one left because it's not the same thing as its modern equivalent, a contract. Okay, I'm not saying the ancient world didn't have contracts. I'm just saying a covenant is not a contract. A contract is an exchange of goods and services. It's an agreement that says, you give me this, and in response, in exchange, I will give you this. And unfortunately, that's often how marriage is thought about. If you fulfill me, I will fulfill you. 
If you please me, I will please you. I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. We'll exchange for the mutual benefit of one another what we have to offer. Okay. But a covenant is something more significant than that. It's not an exchange of goods and services. It's a commitment of loyalty to a person. God makes a covenant with Israel, and this is how he speaks of it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Does that sound similar to what we've heard repeated in Song of Solomon? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. It's a covenant. It's a commitment of loyalty. It says, I will fully, completely, exclusively, and permanently give myself to you. And in exchange, you will give yourself to me. It's a commitment of loyalty and love. Now, how does sexual intercourse and our sexuality fit into this relationship? What is the significance of it? There's clearly a significance because the phrase that's used and the two will become one flesh is inherently pointing to the sex act itself. It doesn't end there, but it clearly begins there in its imagery. I would argue that the best way to think of this is to think of the sex act as if it were a sacrament. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that marriage is a sacrament. We're Protestants and not Catholics. Um, we believe in two sacraments, communion and baptism. But, effect- but it's, uh, effectively, what a sacrament is, is something that God has commanded us to do to both signify and seal the covenant, the relationship we have in Jesus Christ, the promises that are given to us. And so baptism is the entrance into that relationship publicly, and communion is a constant reminder and renewal ceremony of the fact that we are in Christ, that he died for us, that we eat of his body, that we drink of his blood, that the new covenant is available to us because we are now connected with Jesus in covenant, okay? So I'm not saying here that marriage is a sacrament. I'm also not saying that sex is a means of grace, We see baptism and communion as significant, not merely as symbols, but actually in shaping us as Christians. And we've got to be careful here because there's a tendency to think of sex in the same way, that good sex makes a good marriage. Okay. Paul Tripp is helpful here. He points out that it's the other way around, that sex can be the fruit of your relationship, but it's never the foundation of it. That what you bring into the bedroom is the rest of your relationship. And that makes sense. Because if you have a hard time being vulnerable with somebody in everyday life, how can you do it while naked and and bodily? If they're selfish in the finances, why wouldn't they be selfish in the bedroom? Okay, there's a relationship between these things, but it flows in the other direction. What I mean tonight by saying that sex is the sacrament of marriage much like a wedding is a sacrament of marriage, one for baptism and one for communion, is that it both signifies the total covenant, it paints the same picture, and it in some way seals it. It in some way is like a embodied renewal of vows. It says with your body what you've already said with your mouth and your vows and say every day in your life, I belong to you. I see you. I'm not afraid to have you see me. I'm not afraid to touch you or be touched by you. In all of your problems, in all of your weaknesses, I will embrace you. Okay? That's the significance of sex, according to the Bible. That it personifies, it embodies, it expresses 
this deep reality that it's only an aspect of. And the problem is, a lot of the modern way of thinking about sex aspires towards the same goal. Less people are getting married now than they have ever been. Okay. But there's an interesting book called Premarital Sex in America, and they argue that is not because people don't care about marriage anymore. It's because they hold it in such high regard they don't want to screw it up. And so really, people don't get married because they don't want to get divorced. And so they want to find the right relationship, the perfect relationship, lay the appropriate foundation before they do something so significant as important or important as get married. Like I said, with settling down, even those who are like, now is a time for sexual adventurousness and freedom, they still go, but then I want to get married and have a family. The aspirations is the same. The problem is the way they go about it goes against the grain of how this works. In fact... If you think of the marriage relationship like a dance and dating or the dating scene or anything that comes before it, any relationship that comes before it like practice, the step you practice in relationship, in serial relationship, one after another of going, this isn't the one and moving on to the next, how is it that we think we're going to shift the way we think about sex when we're with the one? You know, this same book shows that the studies point to the people who have the most significant view of romance are the quickest to walk away from a relationship when it gets hard. Why? Because, well, this difficulty shows this isn't the relationship I'm looking for. Why is it that we think we can walk in that, live in that, breathe in that, practice that, and then suddenly we're going to throw the e-brake and turn completely around and do something different? But the significance of these things is not just for human flourishing. Like we see here, the way we're talking about sex tonight is put in the concept of design. This is how God built the marriage relationship to work. But why did he make it that way? And that's where Paul becomes helpful in Ephesians chapter 5. Now Paul, like all those other passages I mentioned, points back to Genesis chapter 2 and creates the same passage, uh, uh, quotes the same passage that we've been looking at tonight. He does it to hold up to the married people in Ephesus and say, this is what your relationship should be like. And then he throws a wrench in the whole thing and moves in a completely different direction at the end of the passage. It's one of those things that once he does it, if you go back and read, you can see he's already been laying the groundwork for that and you just didn't see it. Okay. Bruce Willis is dead. It's that type of thing, right? Once you see it, you don't unsee it. But he's been laying this groundwork about the significance of the marriage relationship being about more than just these two human people. But notice what he does here in chapter 5. When he quotes Genesis, he says, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one, become one flesh. And then notice what he says. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. He says, this is going to be surprising. It's a little bit of an open secret. The word here, mystery, doesn't mean enigma, like, you know, unsolved mysteries. The, the word mysterion here means something that was not known until it, the curtain was pulled back and it was revealed. And so he's saying, we've now come to understand what we didn't initially understand. And what is it? That this verse is really about God's relationship with his people. 
This verse is really about Jesus' relationship with his church. Notice here what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, the marriage relationship is a perfect analogy of what God wants with his people. No, he says, this is profound, but I'm saying that this is about that. It's not Paul going, what's a good picture of God's relationship with man? It's God going, let me create a living embodiment of the relationship I desire to have with mankind. And to some degree, that really shouldn't surprise us. Just listen to the way that Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father in the book of John. The Bible declares that God is a God of love, which means that God is triune. He is not merely God, but God as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Three persons in one Godhood. Perfect and full community, living out a life of love. And nowhere makes this clearer than the Gospel of John. And so Jesus starts to say things like, Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Have you ever really tried to chew on exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to express by that? He says things like that substantially and significantly. Consider this, that the Trinity is their titled, is their self-proclaimed. All of their identities are bound up in one another. And so calling God the Father implies what? The Son. Calling God the Son the Son implies what? A Father. And the Spirit is simultaneously referred to as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Their identities are bound up in one another. The Greek Orthodox Church has a word for this, this reality of mutual indwelling in the Trinity. It's perichoresis. I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't heard it before. And even if you've read it, I don't know if you've ever pronounced it right. I had to do some study to get it right. But perichoresis comes actually from Greek culture, specifically dance. Most forms of dance in modern culture that involve a relationship, so not not a group of people doing the same dance or a line dance, but a relational dance involve two people, right? Somebody who leads and somebody who follows. A perichoresis is a Greek dance of three people where the partners are constantly moving around each other and interweaving and changing. And so the Greek Orthodox early church fathers took this idea and said, that's kind of how this is going on in the Trinity, The relationship is so close and so intermeshed, all separate, but indwelling one another. That's how intimate the relationship is within the Godhood, as it's always been, as it always will be. It's this divine dance. And effectively, what what Paul says here and what the New Testament maintains is that through Jesus Christ, God has invited us into a relationship like that. In the same way that we envision a one-flesh relationship, a sharing of life, a uniting of destinies, so also because of the work that Jesus has done, his people are grafted in, and that's why the primary expression for the Christian relationship in the New Testament is in Christ. If any of you are in Christ, since you are in Christ, because you are in Christ, right? Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear fruit. He's drawing a correlation to this. This is the significance of the marriage relationship is it is a living parable of the intimate relationship that God desires to have with you. That's clearly what makes it significant in its ethic, but it also makes it significant in its symbolism. And this is substantial. It's important because not all of us are or will be married. But if you have been united to Jesus Christ, the true significance of marriage will not be lost on you. You may miss the sign, you'll still get to the destination. 
And the destination is a mind-blowing one, one of knowing and being known by the God who made you, of sharing in life in such a way that it's like you've been drawn into the presence of God himself with nothing between, fully exposed and completely unashamed because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. Let's pray. God, the longings, the desires we have, the way we are designed, all points to these things. The need to be known and accepted and loved. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take this profound mystery, as Paul puts it, chew on it, meditate on it, think of it, ask the important questions. How would I live if I knew this was the case? that I was so bound up to Jesus and his destiny. And clearly, Lord, this calls for a, uh, a high-ranking importance on the institution of marriage, on our sexuality and what we do with it, not merely because it points to these things, but also because in pointing to it, it's designed to work in a particular way. And I think all of us can agree the destination is good, so help us to walk the road as it's laid out in Scripture. Help us to understand the why of our relational sexuality as being a pointer to, a symbol of, an acting out on stage of everything you offer us in Jesus Christ. Not just intimacy with another human being, but a loving and close and belonging relationship with the God who is love. We ask that you would help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to move right into this time of Q&A. If you haven't had a chance to text in your questions, go ahead and do so now. I need to make a quick technological transition right here, and then we'll jump right in. Okay. Let's deal with this one first. What do you think about the fact that some Christians believe they have been called to singleness? Is that biblical? Now, we're going to focus on this pretty heavily in our seventh and last week because it's a significant question. Um, but it's worth, again, looking at the text that's probably the most important on this issue. Really, there's two of them. One I'll paraphrase and one we'll turn to. Um, the first one is in Matthew 19. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees about divorce. They've been trying to trap him on a politically hot topic of what's the right grounds for divorce. And instead of answering and choosing sides like they're expecting him to, he goes back to Genesis, as we've seen over and over again, and he says, in the beginning, divorce wasn't on the table. We can't talk about the possibility of divorce until you get the significance of the marriage. And he basically says, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. Now, his disciples who are listening to this are so struck by it, they go, well, if it's that big of a deal, maybe it's better not to get married. And most commentators believe they're trying actually to get a softer answer out of Jesus. Okay? The idea of, of Jewish men thinking that not married is an option is, is a weird one. Okay? The Jewish rabbis taught that 
be fruitful and fill the earth was one of the 613 commandments that all men had to fulfill. So get married is not just an option, it's a requirement of righteousness. Have kids is a requirement of righteousness. And so for them to saying, maybe it's better not to get married, they're really pushing Jesus and going, is this really what you mean? And as is often the case in Jesus' conversations, he doesn't back down, but he pushes further. And he says, that's right, but not everyone can receive this saying. And then he takes the picture of the eunuch, a well-known reality in those days, men who had been castrated in the service of politics or the king, and he says, some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs by men, and some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. He says, if you can receive this, then receive it. And so what he says is, what's happening in my coming is opening up the door for people who will choose a life without marriage. And so he both reverses the image of eunuch, which is usually a negative concept in a Jewish mind. He follows uh, Isaiah in chapter 56 or 57 in holding up the eunuch of having a destiny in God's coming kingdom. And then he says it's also a paradigm that some will make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Probably not referring to physical castration, but a determination not to have a marriage relationship. And so it's no surprise when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul picks up on this and that he himself is a single man. Now whether Paul was always single is up to debate. We know uh, that he was a Pharisee, so like I said, marriage is a big deal to those who are committed to keeping the law. And we also know, because of a, a way that he tells his own story, that he was one of those who voted on the death of Stephen, which probably means he's part of the 70 leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, who were required to be married before entering. Okay? We don't know what happened to his wife. Maybe she died. Maybe when he became a Christian, she left him. But either way, he chooses at that point in his life to not only remain single, but also counsels other Christians to do so. Okay? You can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's in that passage that Paul says, I wish that all of you were single like me, but each one has his own gift. Okay? And so Paul there in 1 Corinthians 7 says there is such a thing as a gift of singleness. Now, does that mean that marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift? Or maybe, to put it better, marriage is a calling and a singleness is a calling? There's a little bit of debate here. Some go, no, singleness is a unique disposition to not need the marriage relationship, to not have sexual desire that needs fulfillment. Remember how he begins chapter 7 when he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Not better. He's not saying sexuality is bad. He's just saying this is also good, which is striking in the voice of a Jewish man. And he says, nevertheless, because of your own sexual desires, let each man have his own wife, and every wife is her own husband, okay? So some say the gift that's being referred to there is a predisposition to not need that, to be able to devote your life fully and completely to the kingdom, to the serving of the Lord without the distractions and the encumberments of a family, okay? Others would say that some are called to singleness and some are called to marriage, and that one of the ways that calling plays out is not always by choice. That one resonates with me more because it, it, a good deal of vocation is not selected. Okay? You were born into a family as a son or a daughter. That's part of your vocation. You didn't sign up for the task. Okay? So not all vocations are chosen. In fact, most of them are divinely given and some of them are given circumstantially. Either way, the Bible clearly maintains, both in the words of Jesus and in the words of Paul, that singleness is an option for Christians. 
that a life of celibate singleness with no expression of your sexuality can not only be an option, but even a fulfilling and a rewarding one. I want you to remember, or if you haven't read it before, look at Paul's way of talking in 1 Corinthians 7. He's not moping about his singleness. He doesn't see it as a terrible burden, but worth it because Jesus is so great. He says, actually, this is a pretty good life. He says, a man is distracted by the needs of his wife or a wife distracted by the needs of his husband, but I can devote myself fully and completely and totally to Jesus. It's pretty clear that whatever was going on in the church of Corinth involved some sort of dire circumstances, and he points out the difference there. He says, I can go through a famine, for example, and I only have to worry about feeding myself. The pain and the difficulty of keeping your kids alive, your spouse alive, is a significant difference, a psychological burden that Paul doesn't have to bear. Okay? And so, so to go back to the question, some Christians believe they have been called to singleness. Now, the mistake the Catholic Church made was that they made this the front line for anyone who entered into the ministry of the priesthood. Uh, and most people entered that vocation at relatively young ages when their needs, desires, and even ambitions were untested. And then they said, well, you're a priest now, so you're stuck with it. That's part of what happens in the Reformation is a response to those things. But can we say that some Christians have been called to singleness? Is that biblical? I would say absolutely. In fact, we'll see the significance of that in the seventh week. Without that, we miss a very important aspect of who God is and the relationship he desires to have with his people. So, okay. Why should marriage not be a sacrament? Now, as I mentioned, Protestants like ourselves, evangelicals, uh, think in terms of two sacraments. The Catholic Church thinks in terms of seven, but they're like the seven dwarfs. If I try and name them, I'll miss one, okay? Um, but that includes marriage. The primary reason is because the word mystery we read in Ephesians chapter 5 in the Latin is translated sacramentum, okay? And so they read, oh, this is a sacrament, okay? And so they see it as significant. They make it a means of grace, and they separate it as being parallel to the installation of priesthood, which also involves a sacrament, okay? And so There's for the married and for the priest. There's this separation into these two categories. Um, The reason we do not hold it to be a sacrament is is relatively simple. It's because Jesus doesn't tell us to do it. In fact, as we saw in Matthew 19, he says not everybody should do it. Unlike baptism, where Jesus says, go into all the world, Matthew 28, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or as often as you eat this and drink this, do this in remembrance of me, he doesn't make similar statements about the, the marriage relationship. Okay? And in my opinion, that doesn't make the marriage relationship less profound, because it's not a sacrament, but it is a mystery, as we saw tonight. Okay? But that is a place we disagree, and it really comes down to one of the great solas of the Reformation, which is sola scriptura. We just don't see the Bible requiring it or speaking of it in those terms. Catholic tradition does, and tradition has a partial authority in the Catholic Church. For us as Protestants, the Bible always gets the final vote. Okay? Ooh, here's a good question. Does sex not become commodified in marriage. Let me change the opening word there. Can it? Absolutely. Of course it can. 
okay? Like anything else in your life, you can use it for good or for evil. You can use it rightly or you can use it wrongly. One of the unique aspects of the marriage relationship is that poor expressions of sex can be redeemed by other expressions of sex, right? By the nature of a longer, uh, a longer um, relationship, there's room for forgiveness, confrontation, repentance, and dealing with this. But it's worth mentioning the fact that in a culture like ours, we naturally think of sex in commodified ways. Okay? We live in a culture that uses sex to sell, that knows it sells, that recognizes that sex can be a way to get ahead in life. Do you honestly think you can believe in that, swim in that, and then get in your marriage and it won't be there anymore? What I'm arguing tonight is not that this can't happen in marriage. I'm saying that the, the sexual relationship in marriage is about something else. The significance is different. If you joined us for last week, we talked about embodied sexuality and that the ethic of how sex is to happen in marriage is more giving than taking. And so it's not even a trade, I will give if you will give to me. It's just that we desire to give ourselves to one another. And so um, that sex can be manipulative is true, but you miss out on the significance and beauty of sex um, if you make it about taking instead of giving which I think is part of that. Do you think it's possible that the story of Adam and Eve is allegorical or mythological, perhaps to teach something? If so, can we still use it as a model for marriage and sexuality? Um, there's really more than one part to this question, and so we'll deal with the parts separately. First off, uh, the way that it's presented in Scripture, as we saw, is paradigmatic. Okay. And so I would argue that its purpose in Genesis, and especially, and this is an important thing to me, if you're going to read the Bible well, I would encourage you to read it like the authors of the Bible read the Bible. One of the most helpful things about the authors of Scripture is most of them are also Scripture readers. And so I want to interpret the Bible the way that Malachi did, the way that Jesus did, the way that Paul did. And so they all, as I said, point to this passage as being significant, not just for giving us an example of how these things can play out, but the archetype of the way they were designed to work. If your view of the first few chapters of Genesis denies, uh, denies the historicity of those things, it doesn't remove that aspect, unless you want to go, well, maybe all of those people wrongly thought wrongly thought that this was the case, in which case we're really asking the question, can we trust the Bible? Which is a very significant conversation to have. And we're assuming in this sermon series, as we always do in this church, the Bible is what it proclaims to be. Okay. Um, so the second thing, is it important that Adam and Eve are historical? Does it matter if there really was a first parent uh, or a first pair of parents? Uh, one of the things that is very difficult uh, when you remove that is to explain the concept of the origin of sin. Okay. If you take, for example, an evolutionary paradigm where whatever there was before man was almost man, then you by nature have this reality of the world as we know it with death already being on the scene, which the Bible says in our lives is actually a symptom that something's gone wrong. Okay. It's not natural, in a sense, um, that death is part of the world. It's, um, what's the word I want? It's consequential, right? It's because everything went wrong. In fact, Paul makes the case that the reason he's confident that you're a sinner in need of saving is because Adam sinned 
and in, in Adam you sinned, Romans chapter 5. I think it is very difficult to disentangle those things, okay? The other problem I have, and it's worth mentioning really quickly, is if you start in Genesis with myth, where do you stop? Because in terms of genre and structure and the way that the passage is written, it's really not that different than chapter 3 or chapter 4 or chapter 5. Is it not until we get past the flood in the Tower of Babel and we get to Abraham's life that it's real? You still have a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife having a baby well past menopause, right? Where is it that you divide the line between history and mythology? Um, it's not merely a slippery slope. You have to answer a different question first, which is what is the Bible? Here's a long one. If marriage isn't necessarily the most intimate form of relationship, is the case you argued based on David's intimacy with Jonathan, could it not be that David's intimacy with multiple wives and concubines had harmed his experience of marital intimacy and therefore resulted in having a more pure and wholesome brotherly relationship with Jonathan? Just because David expresses such depth to his relationship doesn't mean he's arguing theologically or that other relationships are intended to be as deep as marriage. I actually think that's a pretty interesting point. It's worth recognizing that David, like most biblical examples, is far from a hermetically uh, sealed, untarnished example. Um, the questioner is right to mention the fact that his experience with marriage is pretty awful. Some in his own doing, like his sin with Bathsheba, and some in the things that were done to him, like Saul's daughter, Michael, and the way that she treated and responded to David. Um, uh, those, I think, are true things. I think there is still significance in the fact that many of the, the same-sex relationships we see in the Bible are clearly closer than the ones that we're comfortable with today. Take, for example, the fact that it constantly mentions the fact that John was laying on the chest of Jesus. That's how close their relationship was. They're having dinner together, and John is leaning on Jesus and asking him a question. That's a close relationship. And the truth is, we're at a place right now, not, not maybe, where, where we can't understand that there's any other form of intimate relationship, um, but one where we read about the relationship with J Jonathan and David, and we inherently think it's sexual. The, the real problem I have with the way we talk about other forms of intimacy is that it's, uh, if it's that close, it must be sexual. That's the only open door. And like I said, even if you step away, step away from David and Jonathan, you still have the mother and child, which is an incredibly intimate and physical relationship, but should never be sexual. Okay. Give me a second here. I need to refresh. Are there certain things that married Christians uh, should stay away from in the bedroom during sex? I said this a few weeks ago, I'll say it again. I'm not really interested in being your conscience. Um, there are plenty of things that the Bible doesn't directly address, but what it does do is help us understand what sex is for. And so I think there are things that if you run through the filter of renewing your mind, like we talked about in Romans 12, of uh, not just assuming everything goes, some expressions of Christian sexuality that I've seen take everything we see in the world and then just con contain it in the safe confines of a marriage relationship. And so, for example, stripper poles and high heels are okay as long as they're in the married bedroom. I think stripper poles say something about what sex is. 
I think they say something about who your sexual partner is and what they're there for. I think if strip clubs objectify women, then it's very possible that you can objectify your wife, and that's moving against the grain of embodied sexuality as we saw it. I think there are plenty of desires, pleasures, kinks, and things that we have in our life that should not be satiated because they're not good. And so, for example, a sadomasochistic relationship that finds sexual pleasure in violence, I do not believe should be embraced as Christians because it goes against the grain of the truth of the value of that person and the value of yourself and what a real loving relationship looks like. There's a major difference between the Christ who laid his body down and was crucified for you and crucifying your mate because it turns you on. There are plenty of other things where I think there is room to consider these things. And all I would do is say, first, you've got to be critical. You have to start with the assumption that you have to ask questions and ask them. And then second, pay attention to what it's actually doing in your relationship. There are plenty of things that may seem fine, but as Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. All things are lawful, but I will not become subject to anything. If some other element or aspect of your sexuality becomes essential for sexual expression in your relationship, I would express concern for that. In polygamy, you said that people can't give themselves fully to all, but that you then divide the giver. Many people believe they have enough love to go around. Could you give another example of why polygamy isn't a healthy option? First off, I would take the phrase enough love to go around to be idealistic and naive. I think that the relationships, when they're fully and honestly weighed by all parties, are never equally enjoyed without reservation. I think many people enter into unperfect circumstances and settle for them and may even express the beauty of that reality. I'll give you one example. One of the books I read that was really interesting was called How Sex Became a Civil Liberty. And it's actually the history of the ACLU. And one of the things that struck me and kind of broke my heart but also resonated with the things that I've come to understand was that one of the early founder women was in a relationship with one of the founding men of the ACLU. And they upheld and applauded an open marriage relationship with free sexuality and she came right alongside him and agreed and then personally and privately in her journals fell apart after years and years of not having what she really wanted out of her spouse. And I think that's always the way it is. I think when people are honest with themselves, it's easy for a man to say, I have much love to go around when he's not loving anyone. And for women to feel unloved. I think it's super natural to recognize that exclusivity says something. I would encourage you this, whoever asked this question, track down G.K. Chesterton's On the Making of Rash Vows, where he takes the vows of chivalry and what's going on in specifically America's change in divorce to no-fault divorce laws as a British man looking on this from a distance and part of the Catholic Church. And he argues for the fact that vows and commitments aren't something that culture puts on people and requires them. It's something that the lovers naturally want to do because it expresses their love.
God says we need a helper. Is it possible? Hold on, there's a second part of this question. There we go. It's up above it, but you'll get it. God says we need a helper. Is it possible that the person could be of the same sex, but where the counterpart or complement is temperament or giftedness or otherwise? Now, it's worth saying, as Dorothy Sayers points out, that the difference between man and woman is a significant difference, but it's not the only significant difference in human life. Right? There are all sorts of other aspects of personality, but male and female is unique in the fact that, that there are effectively two models. Um, it's not one of many choices. It's, it's male and female. Um, now, one of the problems with trying to come up with a Christian sexual ethic for same-sex marriage is that um, we see this male and female aspect regularly and consistently held up, not only in Genesis, where remember, it doesn't just say Adam married Eve, it says for this reason a man will leave his father and be joined to his wife. It's engendered the way that it talks about it, but also that's the way Jesus deals with it. In Matthew chapter 19, he says, have you not read in the beginning that, the, that he who created them male and female, that's where he begins, not in chapter 2, but in chapter 1, verse 27. He who created them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be, to, uh, be joined to his wife, uh, and the two will become one flesh. And so the paradigm that's upheld is inherently engendered in Scripture. Now I tried to give you some of the explanation why that's the case tonight. Um, but the, the statement is consistent. However, the way the Bible views homosexual acts, not homosexual people, but a, a sexual act between same-sex persons is consistently negative. There is no positive example of a same-sex union in marriage. Now, there's a lot of yeah buts that we can bring into that. We could say, but maybe they didn't understand sexual orientation like we did. That is an incredibly difficult case to make. Take, for example, the writings of Plato. I think you would all assume to me that he was not an unknown author in the Roman world. In one of his most known works, Symposium, one of the characters lays out an origin story that explains sexual desire in this way. He says, originally, there were three types of beings, beings that were male and male combined, beings that were male and female combined, and beings that were female and female and combined. And because they upset Zeus, he split them in half, and now they're incomplete until they can find their other half. That's clearly not the same thing as how we think about sexual orientation, but it's similar, is it not? In fact, the Roman world was full of all sorts of same-sex relationships, some of them uh, head-scratchers and clearly wicked to us, like pederastry, right? A relationship between a teacher and his young boy student that was inherently sexual. It was just part of the design and a major part of much of Roman culture. Uh, but others that were clearly not oppressive. We know in the days that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, uh, another author who speaks of, count, uh, of multiple women who had married women. Marriage relationships in the Roman world. Now, we could say... Uh, we could say that the instances in the Bible are not referring to those things, but the way those things are referred to doesn't talk about specific versions of same sexuality. It, it speaks of it consistently um, in this way. Um, so, so that's a challenge then. It's a challenge, and one of the things that we'll see in gender 
is that, uh, that this idea of male and female has significance, not just for the marriage relationship, not just for the sexual relationship, um, but also for human community as a whole. And when it says male and female created in the image of God, um, that there's a significance in gender. And I think these things come together to, to speak uh, of the definition of marriage. Now, with that being said, that's not all the Bible says that is pertinent to people who have same-sex desires. There's a lot more that we can and probably should talk about. There's a book that I would encourage you to read that's sitting on the trunk back there that you're welcome to pick up um, uh, that, uh, by Preston Sprinkle that kind of deals with these things in a way of just trying to wrestle through Scripture by a man who is in um, extensive relationship with people in the LGBT community as well as with open and affirming Christians. Christians who have decided the Bible does not negate the possibility of these things. Um, it's a pretty good place to start. If you want to read the books on the other side of the issue, I can recommend those ones as well. Um, but what I'll, whatever I would encourage you is if you, assume, if you assume my presentation is wrong, make sure and read both sides. It's easy to find books that just satisfy you in your own position. And what I've really tried to do with this series is read broadly, and I would encourage you to do the same. If your spouse were to die, would that mean they were in the way of God's will, another marriage for you? Death is a complex reality in the way that the Bible talks about it. I can't deny the fact that when we move all the way back to the bottom floor, the basement level, God is sovereign. And so no death surprises him. In fact, the Psalms speaks of that as being a beautiful thing because nobody who's one of God's children dies unbeknownst to him. He's present, he's available, he's involved in it. Um, I will add to that statement here um, that there is a second thing, a second caveat that we should make for here, which is the fact that just because you're a widow, once again, the New Testament would say, you should consider singleness. That we shouldn't assume just because we had a wife once that we need a wife again. That maybe what God is opening up for you is a new season of singleness. Uh, the third thing I would add is this is just a very strange way to think about what God is doing in your life that makes the marriage relationship a hindrance to another marriage relationship, as if what you need most in your life is for God to change your circumstances so you can finally do what he desires for you. Here's God's will for your life if you're married. Be a good spouse. Now, whatever happens may change that, but God's not so interested biblically in changing your circumstances as he is in taking you through it. And he's not so interested in removing obstacles from your life as he is demonstrating that those obstacles are merely molehills instead of mountains. And so the most important question in faithfulness is not how can God get me where he's clearly taken me, it's what is he doing right now? And for all of those reasons, I think... Um, I think this question is somewhat unanswerable. Does it ha have to mean this? Absolutely not. Could it possibly mean this? I suppose, but not on the basic data of the fact that your wife just died. Okay, it's 9.06, so I'm going to do two more, and then we'll close for the night. 
In regards to polyamory, I'm sure I have friends who would argue they can in fact share themselves completely with multiple people. Could you speak a bit more about this and how is this inconsistent with our design? So, let's see if I can go about this in a different way. I think one of the places that we should point to is what we're going to deal with next week. Procreation is an aspect of sexuality as it was designed. That can't really be denied, it can just be resented. Okay? It's an aspect of how sex works. Okay? Um, but as we'll see next week, the reason that's significant is not just because God gave us sex so we could have babies, it's that God desired for Adam, as he desires for us, community, and the making of babies in a marriage is a unique moving in the direction of that community. It's a way that we physically and intimately express that need for community. It's not the only way. And it's not the only way to find community, although for Adam and Eve, let's just recognize it's so. Here's, here's something you probably don't think about. Not all of your relationships should be sexual, but the fact that you can have relationships are inherently built on sex. Sex is the cement of society. If there was no birth, there'd be no people for you to know, right? Okay? That's how integrated these things are, but it's easy to forget, especially in a world like ours, which has completely separated sexuality and pregnancy. Okay? More on that next week. Um, but one of the challenges uh, of polyamory is the inherent confusion of the family. Okay? Now, at the point we are, you could say, why not two husbands? Why not two wives? Uh, but, but here's the thing that... Um, the Bible puts such significance on the parent-child relationship, both mother and father, um, that it, it almost, it's almost like fractal geometry. It's the same problem from a different perspective, the same aspect of exclusivity. And this is another place that in our times, because of technology, is getting super weird. Okay? And so if, if you can't have a baby with your spouse, you may incorporate other people into the creation of the existence of this child. And that might be fine for you who desire to have a baby, but don't forget the fact that this child is now connected in heritage, in genetics, which we really care about, don't we? To a person that they may not be ever allowed to know who it was. Okay, there's a muddling of the relationship that's involved. Polyamory has a tendency to do a similar thing. And it's easy to say, well, what if they don't have kids? And I would say the same thing is true of cousins or brother and sister. Okay, it's not merely an issue of what happens with babies, but it is an aspect of that issue. Um, the, the expression of exclusivity doesn't merely say, I'm giving myself fully to you. It also says, you were enough for me. And I think that expression is inherently lost in polyamory. It says that this relationship is not complete without another component, without a rounding off of the things. And I think in terms of security, in the terms of... Um, um, sense of self, um, I, think, I think that's incongruent. And I'm just going to call foul. I think it's easy for people to point to these relationships publicly and practically. I don't think it's what it appears to be. I know that's not a terribly satisfying os uh, uh, um, answer, and it sounds like a hunch, but it lines up with everything I know about my own sexuality, which is that I'm totally capable of deceiving myself or convincing others to deceive others on my behalf that this works when it doesn't.
Last one, and then we'll stop for the night. Oh, actually, I might have exhausted them. Let me refresh. Okay, looks like that's it. So um, thank you again for coming tonight. Thank you for your questions. Um, we will continue this series, and one of the challenges of trying to lay out a foundation is that you have to do it one block at a time, but you really need all of it to make sense of and to understand the significance. So even if I have deeply upset you tonight, or this feels completely incongruent, I would encourage you to, to come back and hear out the rest of the series, to pick up the ones you missed online, um, because I would love to say them all at once, but that's not how communication works. So let's pray. God, I thank you for all these people who, um, who just by their presence and by their questions have expressed a desire to know right and wrong in these things, to understand how these relationships are to play out, and to consult um, your word as, as an authority on these things. I know that where they're coming from, what they're facing, what they personally believe, their own opinions may differ radically from each other and from myself, but I appreciate the fact, and I thank you for the fact that they were here and that they care enough to even think about these things instead of just engage with them, assuming that they already know. I pray, Lord, for all of them, despite the places where I may be wrong or incorrect, where I may have misled, I pray for all of them that you would be faithful to lead them, that if they really desire to submit their sexuality uh, to you, to, do it, to have it and hold it in a way that honors and glorifies you and achieves what it was designed to achieve, um, I pray that you would get them there. And I thank you for the fact that you're that type of God who meets us wherever we're at, but never leaves us there. I pray that you would do that work in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a good evening.